can turn over to the book of Romans, chapter 7. Romans, chapter 7. And we find ourselves in the middle of Romans, chapter 7, in uh, verses 14 to 25. And we're going to be taking a couple weeks to get through this because it is uh, probably one of the more difficult passages in Romans uh, to interpret and to understand. Um, with the exception of some prophetical texts in the Bible, um, there's not too many other texts of Scripture that when you go and you actually see what people believe about this, they're all over the map. And um, we're going to explain some of those things today. And that's what makes it kind of a, a difficult passage. And you'll understand that once we read it a little in a couple minutes here. But the question to ask yourself, and what kind of part of the controversy over this text is, who is Paul describing here in verses 14 to 25? Is he describing himself? Is he describing his own experience? If so, is he describing his experience maybe before he was saved? Or maybe when he first came to know Christ as an immature believer? Or is this experience document his experience as a mature believer in Christ? And so that's the, the gamut of different opinions of people who are way above my pay, gra- pay grade with a lot bigger brains than I have, uh, and they all disagree on all this stuff. So we're going to try to make some sense of this text this morning and kind of give it an overview, and then we'll dig in a little further next week. But remember, Paul's in the middle of teaching us how to overcome sin as Christians in our daily experience, and it's important to understand that for a variety of reasons. Um, But we can't apply this text of Scripture to our hearts until we first understand what the text of Scripture is saying. Remember, there's only one proper interpretation of any text of Scripture. Some people think, well, that's your interpretation. No. There's only one interpretation of Scripture. That's the author's original intent, the way he meant it to be interpreted. And so we're going to try to do our due diligence this morning to give you that interpretation. But there's many applications. And so a lot of times you'll read a scripture and it means something to you. It might mean something to somebody else. That's not a different interpretation. That's a different application. And so it's important to understand those two words. Because sometimes you find yourself in the midst of a Bible study, sitting around a table... And everybody's going around, well, what does this mean to you? And you share all these things, and the next person shares what, they, what the Scripture means to them, and the next person, you go around this table, and then you move on to the next passage. But nobody really has taken the time to understand what the passage actually says. So you're left with a plethora of different ideas bouncing around in your head, which is not the way to study the Bible. And that's not the way God intended us to study the Bible. So we want to take this passage really as a whole. And so I want to read it for you, Romans chapter 7, and put your thinking caps on, because just reading through this is kind of interesting. Uh, Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not know what I want. For For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. 
wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Should I read it again? (laughs) I probably couldn't. (laughs) Uh, It's a very confusing text. But when you boil it all down, it's really not. And so that's what we're going to try to do today. Um, I think that it's important that we understand here that Paul must have been concerned that we see this and that we recognize that sin is something in the believer's life and it's something that's difficult. Because he goes to uh, considerable lengths here to teach us these truths. Um, Now, in verses 14 to 24, you notice he basically says the same thing three times. He just begins to repeat himself over and over. He does it three times. And so he's still teaching. Remember the context of this whole teaching. He's still teaching on the subject of justification by grace through faith. And we've gone through all that. So we're not going to spend time here this morning to to reestablish that foundation. But just remember, justification is not something you earn before God. It's something that's given to you as a free gift through His grace, and you appropriate it by by faith. So he has established that justification results in chapter 5, we went through this, in the believer's security. In other words, if God's justifies you, if God says you are just, then you're secure. Because no one outranks God the last time I checked. Even though we have some people dressed in black robes that think they do in our political system. But they don't. God will have the last say, trust me. And so we saw that in chapter 5, that in Christ, when God justifies us, when God saves us, when God transforms us, please, if you're, if you're saved today, believe that you are secure in Christ. You don't have to go to bed at night wondering whether or not you're going to be in heaven one day. You don't have to worry about that. That's something that God has already taken care of. He has saved you. From all your sin, past, present, future. And so we are secure in Christ. And then Paul taught us in chapter 6 a little bit about his holiness. Why we need to be justified. Because God is absolutely holy and we are not. (laughs) That we are steeped in our sin and somehow we can't just clean ourselves up. I'm getting a little nervous with this water rationing thing. Because I, I like to be clean. Okay, I like to take showers. I like to take baths. I, you know, if I go out and work outside and I come in sweaty, I'm just, just crashing on the I go to the shower and I take a shower. I go home from church, first thing I do is I take a shower. Who knows what people are carrying nowadays? You know, I don't want to get sick, so I go home and take a shower. I de- disinfect myself. And I would encourage you to do the same. Why do I do that? Because I want to be clean. Well, everyone wants their sin dealt with. Everybody knows that we're not clean before a holy God. That somehow we have sinned. Either either we've thought something or we've taken something that's not ours. Or we've lied about something. Or we haven't worshipped God the way he demands to be worshipped. And so we all fall short. And that's what chapter 6 showed us, is that through Christ, through his sacrifice, through the love of God as he reaches out to us, that we, once again, even though we were slaves to sin, we can become slaves to righteousness. That he can change us. He changes our disposition. He changes who we are. And we talked a lot about the idea that, you know what, once you become a Christian, we're not talking about addition. We're not talking about learning a new way, picking up the Christian lingo and learning some Bible verses, and then you just kind of add that to your life. No, the Bible says that, you know what, once you become a believer, the old man is dead, and it's buried. It's gone forever. 
but you still deal with sin, <laughs> just like I still deal with sin. And so if the old nature is dead and buried, why are we still dealing with sin? And so we looked at part of this in the beginning of chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, when he talks about the freedom from the bondage to the law, that we're no longer under this binding, you don't have this burden of the law over us, causing all this guilt, because why? Because we're free in Christ. We're forgiven as believers. He's saved us. He's transformed us. And so we have the believer's security, we have God's holiness, and we, and, and we also have our freedom in Christ. Now, in verse 14, or verse 7 there, he basically asks this question, well, what, if all this is true, Paul, what shall we say then? Remember, Paul's constantly one step ahead of the game with those who are reading his letter, with those whom he is addressing. He's always one step ahead of the game. So he says, oh, you're thinking this because I'm, at, I'm saying this. You're thinking this. So let me ask, answer the question you haven't even asked yet, but I know it's in your head. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? They're talking to you, and all of a sudden you, you begin to think, well, wait, that's not right. And they tell you, you know what, I know what you're thinking, but just, just be patient, you know. They know. They, they answer your question before you even ask it. That's kind of the person Paul was. He headed them off at the pass. And so he says, is the, is the law sin? I mean, if you can't get saved by the law, what, what good is it? And we learned that the purpose of the law is not to save us, but it's to show us our need to be saved. And we talked about the idea, if there's no laws... There's no speed signs, then there's no speed signs. You can drive down Jefferson 100 miles an hour if you want to do it. If there's no law that says you can only go 30 or whatever it is, 25. And so he begins in verse 14 with these three statements, these three outcries about his struggle with sin. Now remember, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. We're not talking about some Joe Christian that just you know, went to church once in a while. No, this is the Apostle Paul. I mean, if you turn to any page in your New Testament, you probably land on a, something he's written <laughs> under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Incredible. And yet he's dealing with some of this stuff. And that's why some people say, well, you know, this can't be describing the Apostle Paul as we know the Apostle Paul because I don't think he would deal with this. But we're going to find out exactly what is meant by this. And so in your outline there, you have kind of a breakdown of this text of Scripture. It's basically three different outcries that Paul makes. The first one in verses 14 to 17 is a very general statement. And you're going to notice each one of these outcries against the struggle with sin that he's having follows the same order. First of all, he states the problem. Then secondly, he describes the conflict. And then he says, this is why I'm doing this. This is the source of the struggle. So in all three sections there, 14 to 17, 18 to 20, 21 to 24, he follows the same pattern. That's why it sounds like you're reading the same thing over and over. What's he just said this? So he's trying to drive a point home. So it must be an important point if he said it three times. So in verses 14 to 17, he says it very generally. He just describes it very generally. He just kind of lays it out there. And then you look in verses 18 to 20, he begins to talk about what he does not want to do, but he's still doing it. And then the last section, verses 21 to 24, he says, you know what, basically it's impossible for me to do what I want to do. Can't do it. And so he follows this pattern of stating the problem, describing the conflict, and giving the source of the struggle or why this is going on. And so he says, basically there, the first time he does it in verse 14, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. He states the problem. He does the same thing in verse 18. What's he do? He starts off, he states the problem. Nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. He does the same thing in verse 21, which begins the third section. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So every time he's stating the problem. 
And then the second thing he does every time is he describes the conflict. Verse 15. What I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. (laughs) He sounds kind of a little mixed up, doesn't he? I'm mixed up after reading it. Boy, I'll tell you. And then in verses 18 to 20, he says, Well, I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So once again, he's describing the conflict. And then the last time he does it, in verses 22 to 23, he says, In my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in my members, the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me, what? The prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And he does the same thing. He closes off each section the same way. Lists the source or why the problem exists. Verse 17, he says, it's, it's not me, it's sin in me. Verse 20, it is sin living in me. Verse 24, it's this body of death that I'm in. And so he, he distinguishes those three outcries. And he says, basically, you know what? This is who I am. This is what I'm struggling with. Now you say, well, what's the controversy here? The controversy of this passage is, who is the man that Paul is describing here? Um, And there's probably people all over the map, well-respected commentators and theologians, all over the map on this. And you have to stop and you ask the question, is this Paul speaking of himself? Is he describing this fierce internal struggle with sin? And then you have to say, well, if it is Paul talking about himself, at what stage in his life is he talking about himself? Is he speaking of the present? That is, of the time that he's writing this letter? Or is he talking about when maybe he was, before he was mature? Or is he speaking of himself in the past? You know, where's he going with this? Who is this man in Romans 7? I'm not going to go into every possible view because it would probably take too long. But the question has divided Bible students from the really earliest days of the church. Um, And even today, people disagree on this. And so Paul is asking two related questions here in this text. How can I live a triumphant Christian life? Would you like to know that? Yes. And then the second question is how I can achieve victory over sin. I I think that's a good question to ask. How can I live a triumphant, Christ-honoring life and how I can achieve victory over sin? I can't imagine a Christian saying, I'm not interested in that. (laughs) I mean, every born-again believer would say, yeah, tell me how, tell me how. I mean, any true Christian wants to know the answer to those questions. And yet, this is such a serious matter, and yet Paul goes into this kind of confusing text here that kind of shares some points with this. So I want to give you an overview of these various views, and basically, it's it's rather simple. Um, Some people argue that Paul is describing, um, well, some people say it's not even, he's not even describing himself, (laughs) if you believe that. I mean, that's just kind of crazy. That's hard to believe. In other words, he's describing somebody else totally. And when you look at the text, I mean, you don't have to look too long before you see the word I, and Paul's writing it, you see it 24 times in verses 14 to 25. Plus, you see the word me, my, or myself 14 times. So Paul's definitely referring to himself. I don't think he's using some literary device to kind of slide something in here and make it all confusing for us. No, I think he's, he's talking of himself. So the question is, well... Where is he in, in his life? Where is he talking? This? There's two views. There's a non-Christian view, and there's a Christian view. There's some people that look at this text and say, well, he couldn't be describing himself as a Christian because of some of the things that we see here. Um, because it's, it's, it's hard to read some of these statements that Paul makes and say, yeah, that sounds like a Christian to me. And so let's look at the, the first thing here. 
the non-Christian view. Um, the way they support their view, they say that Paul's kind of either referring to somebody else or he's referring to himself before he was even a Christian. Um, and just to let you know, this was the position of the early church fathers when they read this. Uh, in the first three centuries of Christianity. Augustine held this view earlier in his Christian life, but he changed. John Wesley, many in the Arminian camp, hold this view. Okay, so the first thing is they say, well, what about the power of God's Spirit as a Christian? If, If this person is a Christian, this doesn't make any sense. Because he says in verse 14, I am carnal, I'm sold under sin. See that there? Would a Christian say that? Then they point to verse 18, and it says, I know that in me, that in my flesh, no good thing dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that, which is, I I, I can't do it. Um, And so they conclude that it has to be a non-Christian because a Christian would know what to do in this situation. There seems to be in this person that Paul is describing here, a lack of the Holy Spirit's power. (laughs) And secondly, there seems to be a lack of the peace of God. I mean, look at verse 24. I mean, that doesn't sound like somebody who's living the victorious Christian life. Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, when's the last time somebody gave you that answer when you asked how they're doing in their Christian life? You know, probably never. Even if they felt that way, they probably wouldn't say it. It seems so far removed from the promise back in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where he says, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That seems so far. Paul, what happened here? And so they look at this lack of power and lack of peace. <clears throat> and they also talk about the freedom of believers, which we just got done studying, by the way. Romans 6 has a lot of examples of the believer's freedom from sin's power. We talked about that. That <clears throat> once you become a Christian, for the first time in your life, you do not have to sin. You can say no. God provides a way out, Paul tells us in Corinthians. He's always faithful to provide a way out. Even when we're, when we're tempted, we don't have to sin. Before, we couldn't help ourselves. And so we were under that burden of sin. And now, in Christ, we realize that Christ has paid our price, that He's freed us from that. We're no longer slaves to sin and unrighteousness. Now we serve God. We're a slave to Christ. And so if this is talking about a believer, Romans 6 verse 2 says, How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? Verses 6 and 7 of Romans 6 says, Our old man is crucified with Christ. The body of sin might be destroyed that we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. We talked about all those verses. Verses 11 to 12 of Romans 6 says, Reckon yourself as dead indeed to sin. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Verses 17 and 18 of Romans 6 says, God be thanked that whereas you were servants of sin, you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you, being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. And so they look at chapter 6 and they say, well, this couldn't be Paul describing himself in chapter 7 this way because it goes totally opposite direction. So the people that say that this is definitely a non-Christian in Romans chapter 7, whoever Paul's describing... They say, how could a a Christian say, I'm carnal, I'm sold under sin? Well, you have to begin to understand the text. 
Okay? The emphasis in chapter 6 was on what? Was on the new creation, right? Was on the new nature. Was on the new identity, the new person that we become, the holiness of the believer. Once we come into Christ and we are forgiven, that's who we are in Romans chapter 6. And in that new redeemed self that we are in Christ, the believer has broken, Christ has broken for the believer, sin's dominion. For the first time, we do not have to sin. And so the emphasis in chapter 6 is on that. But when you come to chapter 7, it's different. Paul gives the other side of the coin. I mean, I think every Christian knows that even though we're a new creation in Christ, that we still sin. I don't think there would be anybody here this morning who said, oh, no, I don't sin anymore. I've reached perfection. Kiss the ring. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. That would be a ridiculous claim to make. All they have to do is follow you around for a day or a couple minutes. and All right, there you sin, pal. Sorry. I don't believe your story anymore. But the conflict is pointed out even in chapter 6. In verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. See, in spite of all that Paul said in chapter 6 about the Christian's new nature, he never said the Christian would not battle with sin. He never said that. And that's why we're going to be talking about the believer's battle with sin. Because it applies to all of us. Verse 12 implies that as well. It's carried even into verse 13. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness onto sin, he says. So it's still possible for Christians to yield to sin. And that's why we're commanded not to. If it was impossible, Paul wouldn't have to command us not to. In Romans 6.19, Paul says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, Onto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness, onto holiness. The implication here, once again, is that the Christian could possibly yield to sin and that we shouldn't do that. <clears throat> so if you want to argue that chapter 7 can't refer to a Christian because of the statements in chapter 6, it's really you're misunderstanding the intention of the writings in chapter 6. So I believe he's referring to a Christian here. Because personally, I believe he's referring to himself. And I believe that uh, Paul was a Christian. Well, let's look at the Christian view. How do they get to this point? If this person is a Christian, how do we see this? Well, look at verse 22. Because what is the description of a Christian? Verse 22 says this. For I delight, whoever's this is, here's what he's doing. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That certainly is something that a non-Christian wouldn't do. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, says that the unregenerate person, those who are not in Christ, is not subject to the law of God. Verse 25 says, Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with my mind I myself serve the law of God. That sounds like a Christian to me. Somebody who's interested in what God's law says so he can follow it. He's pursuing God. He's not running from God. He's not saying, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe God. I don't believe there is a God or His Word or anything. No, he's saying, I love it. He wants to serve Christ. He wants to serve the law of God. And the second thing there, he mentions in verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing, what? I hate 
Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about sin. Does an unsaved person long to do what is right, but inexplicably prevented from doing so? I really want to do what's right. I really, but you know, just no, no. An unsaved person has no clue about doing what's right. I mean, they may live a moral life. They may be a good husband or whatever it might be, a good father and worker and all that stuff. That's, that's worldly standards. Jeremiah 7, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So if you're sitting here this morning and saying, Well, you know, do I pursue God? Do I hate sin? Eh. You might want to think about where your heart is. Because if you're not in Christ, the Bible says that you're, you're dead in your sins. You're carrying around a weight of sin that Christ has already, that Christ wants to pay for, that Christ wants to take from you. He says, come to me. I'll, I'll make your burden light. And you always hear some people who are not Christians, they'll say, well, I don't feel I'm carrying any burden. What do you mean I'm carrying a burden? I don't feel like I'm carrying around any burden. I remember reading a story of a pastor who was using that example, you know, as an unchristian, non-Christian, someone who's not in Christ, you're carrying around a tremendous burden of sin. And there was a young man who said, okay, if this burden of sin is so burdensome, how much does it weigh? Does it weigh 5 pounds, 10 pounds, 100 pounds? Because I'm not a Christian, and I'm not feeling your burden of sin that you're telling me I have. And the pastor thought for a moment. And he said, let me ask you a question. If I took a 400-pound block of concrete and dropped it, on a dead corpse, would it feel it? The Bible says that you are dead in your trespasses and sin. In other words, you're carrying around a burden you can't even perceive what it is. But we know the Bible tells us it's there. And Christ came to relieve you of that, to lift that burden. So a Christian is someone who pursues God, someone who hates sin. And that's what Paul is describing here. He's not describing somebody that's doing sin and loves it. No, he says, I'm doing something I hate. As a believer, don't you hate it when you sin? It's a conviction. It's just, man, I blew it again. You know, and it drives you to your knees, and it drives you back to the cross, and it drives you back to God. I think that's kind of why God allowed this little cycle of sin and forgiveness to continue in the believer's life. Can you imagine what we'd be like if the moment we came to Christ, we were perfect? Can you imagine a church full of a bunch of perfect Christians? I mean, we're perfect positionally. But I don't know about you. But my ego would be, if I could walk, if I could be perfect, I'd be telling people about it. And I'd tell you what, I'd be looking down on all you people who couldn't be perfect like I'm perfect because I don't sin. I'm a Christian. Would you be drawn to that kind of gospel? I don't think so. But when you say, you know what, it's by the grace of God that I stand here before you, That he has forgiven me. And it's only by his grace I can continue each day. Because every day I need that grace. Every day I'm going to the cross. And I hate it when I fall short of God's standard. I hate it when I do something in my life that's dishonoring to Christ. See, that's that's a true believer. And that's what he's saying here in in these verses. Something deep inside this person wants to do what is right. Nevertheless, an evil principle 
keeps that from being accomplished. Romans 3 tells us that the unsaved person has no such desire to do the will of God. Romans 3, verses 11, 12, 18, there it says, There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God, there is none that does good, no, not one. There's no fear of God before their eyes, it says. Paul basically says an unbeliever does not pursue God. And he doesn't seek after to understand his holy law. So the conflict that's described here in Romans chapter 7 clearly must be of someone who is truly redeemed. Someone who's come to Christ, who's been forgiven. I don't think an unsaved person experiences much of that battle at all. They just continue to live their life. They're sinning. They don't even really know it. (laughs) From God's perspective, people are not good by nature. They're evil. And we need to be reminded of that. Well, another question comes up at this point when we talk about this Christian in Romans 7. And it's simply this. Well, what kind of Christian is this guy? I mean, think about it. Who is he talking about here? The Christian of Romans 7, is this some spiritually immature person? I mean, some people believe that this is what you call a a carnal Christian. And they use this text to support their view. In other words, you can come to Christ and you can get saved and then you can live however you want. They say that, well, that's a carnal Christian. One writer says Romans 7 describes the abject misery and failure of a Christian who attempts to please God under the Mosaic system. I don't agree with that. Well, maybe this is describing somebody who's Mature spiritually. Um, Remember I mentioned Augustine? Well, later in life, this is what he came to understand. This is also a view held by Luther and Calvin, most of the Reformers. Reformers such as John Owen, Charles Hodge, John Murray. More recently, James Boyce. John Piper, others, MacArthur. See, I really believe that Romans 7, verses 14 to 25, describes probably one of the most mature Christians there ever could be. Why do you say that? Well, I say that because he sees so clearly the inability of his flesh to uphold the divine standard. The more a believer matures, the more spiritual a believer is, the greater his sensitivity is to the shortcomings in his own life. You take an immature Christian, he doesn't really have an honest perception of himself. I mean, he's kind of high on his salvation and, you know, he's talking all this smack and, you know, boy, he's going to change the world and boy and it's great to have that kind of enthusiasm but you just kind of smile and go okay (laughs) you know you wait call me tomorrow when you've done something that totally dishonors the savior that just saved you tell me how you feel then see it's only the legalist who is under the illusion that he's so spiritual not the mature believer. And I believe Paul here is describing himself in this chapter. And he uses I, 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 my, me, mine, over and over and over. It would be hard to understand that he's describing somebody else. Now some people say that this describes Paul's struggle before he was saved or even when he just got saved or he's still spiritually immature. But I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that discernment at all, that understanding at all. I think it describes him at the very heights of his Christian maturity because he's being open, he's being honest. 
He understands that he's never going to live up in this life to God's holy standard. Remember, oh, how high is God's standard? Remember what they asked Jesus. Well, how do we get into, you know, uh, what do we have to do to get into heaven? How, how good do we have to be? And what did Jesus say? You have to be what? Perfect as my Father's in heaven. Well, that kind of closes the book on a lot of people. It's like, you know, head back to the back of the line there, pal. You're up here all thinking you're Mr. Christian and you're perfect. Well, you're not. He finds himself really confronted with the ugliness of sin in his life. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. is also written by Paul. Is this Romans place, the only place that Paul describes himself as this Christian in turmoil with the struggle of sin? No, in his other writings he does as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verses 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles. (laughs) Bottom of the barrel, end of the line. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, don't you just love the buts of scripture? I do. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Paul didn't feel fit to be an apostle because he had once persecuted the church. Look over at Ephesians chapter 3. Now remember, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians was written before Ephesians. So look at chapter 3, verse 8. So this is a little later on in Paul's Christian walk. And he says in verse 8, chapter 3, Ephesians, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He seems a little more humble there. Look over at 1 Timothy. Keep turning to your right. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. So he wrote this after he wrote Ephesians. A little later on says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners Of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul is saying, if God can save me, he can save anybody. He experienced God's power, his wisdom, his knowledge. That's what happens when you grow in your relationship with Christ. You take a new believer, man, they're ready to conquer the world. You take a seasoned saint, they're going, okay, let me pray about that first. (laughs) You know, they understand. And now go back to Romans 7 because he clearly uses some terms here in Romans 7 that you can't miss his personal struggle with sin. Verse 15, we talked about this, that he hates committing sin. Verse 19 and 21, it says that he loves righteousness. 22 says that he delights in the law of God from the bottom of his heart, basically. Verse 25 says that he thanks God for deliverance in Christ. I mean, I would say that those are all responses of a mature Christian. That's not some 
new believer. You may have also realized that in verses 7 to 13 of Romans 7, when he's talking here, he's talking in the past. All the tenses are in the past. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from. Um, he, he goes down, down through that whole text and he's talking about something in the past. And then in verse 14, all of a sudden, the tense changes to the present tense. So it tells us that Paul moved out of the past tense before he was redeemed into the present tense. And along with that came a different relationship to sin. Look at verse verse 11, Romans 7, verse 11. It says, For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, past tense, and through it killed me. Sin killed Paul's hope. Sin killed Paul's security. Security in what, you might say? In his self-righteousness. In the law of God. But then all of a sudden in verses 15 to 25, you see Paul alive and he's fighting with sin. So I clearly believe that verses 14 to 25 is Paul's own personal testimony of how to live a a spirit-controlled, God-honoring life. He loves God's law, but he finds himself wrapped in this human flesh and unable to fulfill the way his heart wants to go. So, it describes the conflict of a mature Christian man, not some little baby Christian that's struggling with sin. And what does that tell us? That tells us that the struggle with sin does not go away, beloved, until we leave this place. We all struggle with sin. And we all deal with the struggle with sin in different ways. Um, I mean, clearly, he's thinking of this victory over sin, and clearly he wants that victory to be ours. And clearly he understands that it can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit and Christ. But he wants us to understand very clearly, I think, the Apostle Paul, that this victory will only come through struggle. It's not handed to us on a silver platter. We don't get saved and then go, you know, dancing through the bed of roses, you know, on our way to glory. No. We return to a sinful, dying world filled with sin all around us. We're still trapped in this body. And so how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this struggle against sin? James Boyce points this out, and he says, Americans, he calls it the American way. (laughs) Americans deal with it in three ways. First of all, they look for a new formula. The first way we try to avoid this struggle with sin in our Christian lives is by hunting down some new easy formula that will bring us victory. It takes various forms. He says, discovering a Christian book that will tell us exactly what we need to do, following a three-step or four-step recipe for growth in the Christian life. Ceasing to do some easy things like going to the movies or something like that. Starting to do more difficult things like attending seminars. Things like, you need to get out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8. Let go and let God. Get self off the throne of your life and put Christ there. Just let Jesus take control. We've all probably heard those things. We've all probably said those things. But the underlying motivation of those attempts is really laziness. Do you understand that when God saved you, He saved you to struggle? 
If he wouldn't have, you'd be out of here the moment you're saved. When you come to Christ, if that wasn't God's plan, the moment you're saved, man, you'd just be transported to glory. Why leave you here? What would be the purpose in that? No, there's, there's a purpose in our struggle with sin. And see, us as Americans think, well, we have to struggle with sin, and, and we just got to find something that we'll just, we can plug in and just take care of that struggle. Or read a little book or a track or something. Something's got to work. And that's why you have Christians all over the globe looking for a little niche, looking for something new. And usually it's the false teachers that prey upon that desire. So they publish certain books and they'll publish stuff out. Oh, you can live this victorious Christian life. You know, if you just follow this formula or pray this prayer every day or do this or do that. And Christians by the hordes follow it. What Paul is saying is that, you know what? We need to understand the Christian life is a hard life by its very nature. It's not easy. Somehow we think that we're not doing it right if it's hard. That if we're not, you know, rolling in the money and have no health problems and all our kids lined up, ducks in a row, everything's good, well, then God's blessing us. No. See, we'll never find that formula because, honestly, it doesn't exist. And so we buy into certain things and then we find ourselves right back in the same sinful behavior we did before, thinking, well, maybe that'll work. Man, I went to that seminar. They promised it would work. It didn't work. You know, whatever it might be. That struggle is there for a purpose. And it's not to excuse sin. We're not doing that. But at the same time, you have to realize and you have to be realistic about who you are in Christ. Positionally, you're forgiven. You're perfect. You're holy. You're a, you're a child of God. Practically, you know what? You're just a saved sinner that's kicking dust up as you go through this sinful, sinful world. Boyce goes on and he explains the second unbiblical way of dealing with this struggle of sin is people look for not just a new formula, but they look for a new experience. You know, we try to avoid this struggle in the Christian life by hunting down some new spiritual experience. Now, the charismatic movement has a very kind of a corner on all this. So they say you can have a victorious Christian life. Well, if you don't, well, let me, do you speak in tongues? Do you, do you sow seed? Do you do all this stuff? And they use all this games to, to, to whet people's appetite. And somehow they think that if they buy into that, that, boy, their life is just going to be wonderful because the people up here behind the pulpit are saying, look at my life. My life's wonderful. Most of those people, you pull back the curtain and their life is anything but wonderful. They're just playing the charlatan. We have to be careful. They teach that somehow there's a second work of grace. That somehow when you come to Christ, he doesn't give you everything you need. Somehow that if you just beg him a little more, that maybe he'll baptize you in the spirit and you'll have a prayer language and you can talk like angels and you can do all these crazy things. I mean, it's bizarre. But people buy into it and follow it by the millions. Why? Because they're looking for a new experience. Because someone said, if you're a Christian, well, you shouldn't have to struggle with sin. That shouldn't be part of your, your Christian life. If I can just get one more emotional experience, if they just play the right song long enough, somehow I'll be elevated to this new level of Christianity where I don't have to deal with sin anymore. It's not going to happen. It's not a realistic expectation. It's not a biblical expectation. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people going home from church, when they say, boy, wasn't that a wonderful, worshipful experience? They mean nothing than maybe they acquired some biblical knowledge and maybe had a little emotional boost here and there. They forget about the struggle with sin. So don't look for a new experience. God has given us everything we need right here in this book 
to deal with the struggle of sin. He's given us everything we need as believers in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and the church and coming together in fellowship to deal with the struggle with sin. But see, the problem is we don't believe that. So when we get caught up in sin, what do we do? Rather than run to the body of Christ, confess the sin and be transparent, we run and we hide thinking somehow, eventually, I'll just get over this, and then I can re-engage with the body of Christ. That's the exact opposite that the Bible tells you to do. The Bible says, you know what, if you have an issue with somebody, if you, you go and you address that, and you get it out in the open. You be transparent. Be humble about it. Don't play games. Don't think somehow that next week you're going to be a little more spiritually clean to walk through the doors. We're all in the same boat. We're a bunch of sinners who've put our faith and trust in Christ and his forgiveness. And we desire to follow him. And the Bible says that desire should be a corporate desire. We should come together. That we should be building up the body of Christ. If you're not here, then you're not building up the body of Christ. There's something missing. If you walked in this morning and I went to shake your hand and you didn't have one. Someone cut your arm off. I'd go, well, that's a problem. Okay, we got a problem here. Somebody cut this guy's arm off. And I go to shake your other hand, and you don't have another arm. I mean, it sounds like a weird illustration, but think about it. We would have a major issue. The Bible describes the body of Christ as our body. We all make up different parts. And when one part isn't here, yeah, nobody may pick up the phone right away and say, hey, where were you? You know, try to make you feel guilty. No, God's perfectly capable of taking care of that. But I think it's important that we understand that when we're not participating as the body of Christ, someone's walking around without a leg or without an arm. Something's not getting done. Maybe somebody who needed some encouragement didn't get it that day because you didn't show up because you were too busy or you let your work schedule get out of hand or whatever it might be. See, we need to take this seriously. So don't be looking for some new experience. God has given us everything in Christ Jesus pertaining to godliness. Well, the third way he says there is avoidance, and we all do this at times. You know, we get defeated. Rather than girding up our loins and turning to attack the problem, we try to fill our lives with something else. It's a movie, it's something, it's whatever, go to the beach, whatever it might be. Sometimes it's empty busyness. It's work. Maybe it's even Christian ministry. Filling up your schedule so much you don't have to deal with the sin that's in your life. Somehow thinking out of guilt, if you just serve God long enough, that somehow this is going to go away. It won't. Just as with unbelievers, avoidance Maybe through alcohol, maybe through drugs for some. But it doesn't work. It doesn't change anything. So don't, don't go to those three ways of dealing with this struggle with sin. You might say, boy, this seems kind of like we're spending a lot of time. Why is this so important? Because sin has consequences. Sin always has consequences. And you say, well, what are some of those consequences? First of all, the Holy Spirit's grieved. I'm not going to read all these verses. You can read them on your own. They're in your outline there. The Holy Spirit's grieved. We don't want to make God sad. We don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. Secondly, our prayers go unanswered. That's good motivation right there, right? I mean, if you're out there just sinning it up, and then you go to God, and you ask, what do you, what do you think that's, you know, it's not a game? I don't think a Christian would say, yeah, I hope my prayers don't get answered. I'm going to go sin so they don't get answered. That would be a silly thing to do. Our life becomes powerless. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that he feared the power of sin to disqualify himself from the ministry. This isn't a game. Any one of us should feel powerless. outside of Christ in the face of sin. The only way to overcome it is through Christ, through his power, through the Spirit, through confession, through what God tells us to do. 
Our praise is unacceptable. The psalmist says praise is fitting to the upright. So you can conclude that praise is not fitting for those who are not upright. God's blessing is withheld, Jeremiah 5.25. He rebuked the nation of Israel. He said, your sins have withheld good things from you. Our joy is forfeited, Psalm 51.12. When confronted with his sin, David asked God to restore the joy of his salvation. You're walking around with your head in the gutter as a Christian, going, woe is me, woe is me. You might want to look at your heart. Look at what's going on in your life. Is there some known sin there that you're not addressing? Seventhly, God chastens his children. I mean, I've never heard a child of any age say, I'm going to go do something wrong so dad can spank me again. I just love it when dad spanks me. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to make this a doozy because I really want him to spank I've never heard a child say that. And yet, as believers, I think sometimes that's exactly what we do. Our spiritual growth is hindered, 1 Corinthians 3. Our service is limited. Paul says we have to have pure lives, pure vessels, if we want to be used for the Master's purpose. Our fellowship is polluted. Our lives are endangered. We don't think of that much, but let me tell you, it's true. A Christian who has unrepentant, willful sin in their life continuously, don't you think for a second God may not take you out? And also, God is dishonored. I mean, we need to have hearts, like the psalmist says, that as the, the deer pants after the water brooks, so our soul pants after God. We need to understand that this is important because sin is real. It's real for every one of us. And we need to believe that the only way we can overcome that, the only way we can overcome that and have victory is through Christ. If we leave it to ourselves, we do one of two things. Either we create a gospel of works so that our salvation depends upon our own righteousness and our own sanctification and our own ability to keep the rules that we think are important. We either do that or we retreat into this passivity and say, well, you know, the battle's God's and, and there's nothing I can really do to achieve victory, so I'll just sit back and let God do the work and let sin have its way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation, listen, with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Two practical things. First, if you hate your sin, if you do not hate your sin and struggle against it, You need to examine whether or not you're saved. Because those who have experienced the new birth hate their sin. And they desperately want to have victory over it. If you just shrug off sin in your life like it's no big deal, that's not a sign that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. It's not a sign that there's an ongoing repentance in your life. Secondly, if you've trusted Christ but are defeated often by sin so that you feel in bondage to it. I want you to understand that there is hope for deliverance in Christ. Your defeats don't mean that you're not born again. We all have defeats. At the same time, we need to realize how serious our sin is and that God did not save you to live a defeated, sin-filled life. He saved you to live a holy life, just as he is holy. And we can do that through the power of his word, through the indwelling spirit, and through the power of Christ. The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, we thank you for this message this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even if there's any here who have yet to cry out to you and to be saved, there's hope. There's never not hope in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would 
move their hearts closer to you, that you would transform them, transform them, that you would give them the mind of Christ, that somehow that you would take the blinders off, that they could see their sinfulness and see their need of a Savior. Lord, we also pray for Christians here this morning who may be dealing with sin. Lord, you know the hearts that are represented here. And Lord, we all stand before you feeling that conviction. But Lord, we are thankful that you have provided a way out that we don't have to time and time again yield to these sinful behaviors that are dishonoring to you. That Lord, you have given us a way out through Christ that we can come to you and confess these sins and once again claim that forgiveness that you have already accomplished for us. So as believers, we're not called to live defeated lives, even though sometimes sin has a way with us. We pray that we would understand that victory is ours in Christ. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.